Chapter 16 Outwitting the Stars Mukunda, why don't you get an astrological armlet? Should I, Master? I don't believe in astrology. It is not a question of belief. The scientific attitude one should take on any subject is whether it is true. The law of gravitation worked as efficiently before Newton as after him. The cosmos would be fairly chaotic if its laws could not operate without the sanction of human belief. Charlatans have brought the ancient stellar science to its present disrepute. Astrology is too vast, both mathematically and philosophically, to be rightly grasped except by men of profound understanding. If ignoramuses misread the heavens and see there a scrawl instead of a script, that is to be expected in this imperfect world. One should not dismiss the wisdom with the wise. All parts of creation are linked together and interchange their influences. The balanced rhythm of the universe is rooted in reciprocity, my guru continued. Man, in his human aspect, has to combat two sets of forces. First, the tumults within his being caused by the admixture of earth, water, fire, air and ethereal elements, second, the outer, disintegrating powers of nature. So long as man struggles with his mortality, he is affected by the myriad mutations of heaven and earth. Astrology is the study of man's response to planetary stimuli. The stars have no conscious benevolence or animosity. They merely send forth positive and negative radiations. Of themselves, these do not help or harm humanity, but offer a lawful channel for the outward operation of cause-effect equilibriums that each man has set into motion in the past. A child is born on that day, and at that hour, when the celestial rays are in mathematical harmony with his individual karma. His horoscope is a challenging portrait, revealing his unalterable past and its probable future results. But the natal chart can be rightly interpreted only by men of intuitive wisdom. These are few. The message boldly blazoned across the heavens at the moment of birth is not meant to emphasize fate, the result of past good and evil, but to arouse man's will to escape from his universal thraldom. What he has done, he can undo. None other than himself was the instigator of the causes of whatever effects are now prevalent in his life. He can overcome any limitation because he created it by his own actions in the first place and because he possesses spiritual resources that are not subject to planetary pressure. Superstitious awe of astrology makes one an automaton, slavishly dependent on mechanical guidance. The wise man defeats his planets, which is to say his past, by transferring his allegiance from the creation to the creator. The more he realizes his unity with spirit, the less he can be dominated by matter. The soul is ever free, it is deathless, because birthless. It cannot be regimented by stars. Man is a soul and has a body. When he properly places his sense of identity, he leaves behind all compulsive patterns. So long as he remains confused, 
in his ordinary state of spiritual amnesia, he will know the subtle fetters of environmental law. God is harmony. The devotee who attunes himself will never perform any action amiss. His activities will be correctly and naturally timed to accord with astrological law. After deep prayer and meditation, he is in touch with his divine consciousness. There is no greater power than that inward protection. Then, dear Master, why do you want me to wear an astrological bangle? I ventured this question after a long silence. I had tried to assimilate Sri Yukteswar's noble exposition, which contained thoughts very new to me. It is only when a traveller has reached his goal that he is justified in discarding his maps. During the journey, he takes advantage of any convenient shortcut. The ancient rishis discovered many ways to curtail the period of man's exile in delusion. There are certain mechanical features in the law of karma that can be skillfully adjusted by the fingers of wisdom. All human ills arise from some transgression of universal law. The scriptures point out that man must satisfy the laws of nature while not discrediting the divine omnipotence. He should say, Lord, I trust in thee, and know thou canst help me, but I too will do my best to undo any wrong I have done. By a number of means, by prayer, by willpower, by yoga meditation, by consultation with saints, by use of astrological bangles, the adverse effects of past wrongs can be minimized or nullified. Just as a house may be fitted with a copper rod to absorb the shock of lightning, so the bodily temple can be protected in certain ways. Electrical and magnetic radiations are ceaselessly circulating in the universe. They affect man's body for good and ill. Ages ago, our rishis pondered the problem of combating the adverse effects of subtle cosmic influences. The sages discovered that pure metals emit an astral light which is powerfully counteractive to negative pulls of the planets. Certain plant combinations were also found to be helpful. Most effective of all are faultless jewels of not less than two carats. The practical preventive uses of astrology have seldom been seriously studied outside of India. One little-known fact is that the proper jewels, metals and plant preparations are valueless unless the required weight is secured and unless the remedial agent is worn next to the skin. Sir, of course I shall take your advice and get a bangle. I am intrigued at the thought of outwitting a planet. For general purposes, I counsel the use of an armlet made of gold, silver and copper. But for a specific purpose, I want you to get one of silver and lead. Sri Yukteswar added careful directions. Guruji, what specific purpose do you mean? The stars are about to take an unfriendly interest in you, Mukunda. Fear not, you shall be protected. In about a month, your liver will cause you much trouble. The illness is scheduled to last for six months, but your use of an astrological armlet will shorten the period to twenty-four days. I sought out a jeweler the next day and was soon wearing the bangle. My health was excellent. Master's prediction slipped from my mind. He left Sarampore to visit Banaras. Thirty days after our conversation, 
I have felt a sudden pain in the region of my liver. The following weeks were a nightmare of excruciating pain. Reluctant to disturb my guru, I thought I would bravely endure my trial alone. But twenty-three days of torture weakened my resolution. I entrained for Benares. There Sri Yukteswar greeted me with unusual warmth, but gave me no opportunity to tell him my woes in private. Many devotees visited the master that day, just for a darsham, the blessing that flows from the mere sight of a saint. Ill and neglected, I sat in a corner. It was not until after the evening meal that all guests had departed. My guru summoned me to the octagonal balcony of the house. You must have come about your liver disorder. Sri Yukteswar's gaze was averted. He walked to and fro, occasionally intercepting the moonlight. Let me see. You've been ailing for twenty-four days, haven't you? Yes, sir. Please do the stomach exercise I taught you. If you knew the extent of my suffering, Master, you would not ask me to exercise. Nevertheless, I made a feeble attempt to obey him. You say you have pain, I say you have none. How can such contradictions exist? My guru looked at me inquiringly. I was dazed and then overcome with joyful relief. No longer could I feel the continuous torment that had kept me nearly sleepless for weeks. At Sri Yukteswar's words, the agony vanished as though it had never been. I started to kneel at his feet in gratitude, but he quickly prevented me. Don't be childish. Get up and enjoy the beauty of the moon over the Ganges. But Master's eyes were twinkling happily as I stood in silence beside him. I understood by his attitude that he wanted me to feel that not he, but God, had been the healer. I wear even now the heavy silver and lead bangle, a memento of that day, long past, ever cherished, when I found anew that I was living with a personage indeed superhuman. On later occasions, when I brought my friends to Sri Yukteswar for healing, he invariably recommended jewels or the bangle, extolling their use as an act of astrological wisdom. I had been prejudiced against astrology from my childhood, partly because I observed that many people are sequaciously attached to it, and partly because of a prediction made by our family astrologer. You will marry three times, being twice a widower. I brooded over the matter, feeling like a goat awaiting sacrifice before the temple of triple matrimony. You may as well be resigned to your fate, my brother Ananta had remarked. Your written horoscope has correctly stated that you would fly from home towards the Himalayas during your early years, but would be forcibly returned. The forecast of your marriages is also bound to be true. A clear intuition came to me one night that the prophecy was wholly false. I set fire to the horoscope scroll, placing the ashes in a paper bag on which I wrote, Seeds of past karma cannot germinate if they are roasted in the fires of divine wisdom. I put the bag in a conspicuous spot. Ananta immediately read my defiant comment. You cannot destroy truth as easily as you've burnt this paper scroll, my brother laughed scornfully. It is a fact that on three occasions before I reached manhood, my family tried to arrange my betrothal. Each time I refused to fall in with the plans, knowing that my love for God was more overwhelming than any astrological persuasion from the past. The deeper the self-realization of a man, 
the more he influences the whole universe by his subtle spiritual vibrations and the less he himself is affected by the phenomenal flux. These words of masters often returned inspiringly to my mind. Occasionally, I told astrologers to select my worst periods according to planetary indications, and I would still accomplish whatever task I set myself. It is true that my success at such times has been preceded by extraordinary difficulties, but my conviction has always been justified. Faith in divine protection and right use of man's God-given will are forces more formidable than our influences flowing from the heavens. The starry inscription at one's birth, I came to understand, is not that man is a puppet of his past. Its message is rather a prod to pride. The very heavens seek to arouse man's determination to be free from every limitation. God created each man as a soul, dowered with individuality, hence essential to the universal structure, whether in the temporary role of pillar or parasite. His freedom is final and immediate, if he so wills. It depends not on outer, but inner victories. Sri Yukteswar discovered the mathematical application of a 24,000-year equinoctial cycle to our present age. The cycle is divided into an ascending arc and a descending arc, each of 12,000 years. Within each arc fall four yugas, or ages, called Kali, Dwapara, Treta and Satya, corresponding to the Greek ideas of iron, bronze, silver and golden ages. My guru determined by various calculations that the last Kali Yuga, or Iron Age of the Ascending Arc, started about A.D. 500. The Iron Age, 1200 years in duration, is a span of materialism. It ended about A.D. 1700. That year ushered in Dwapara Yuga, a 2400-year period of electrical and atomic energy developments, the age of telegraphy, radio, airplanes and other space annihilators. The 3600-year period of Treta Yuga will start in AD 4100. The age will be marked by common knowledge of telepathic communications and other time annihilators. During the 4800 years of Satya Yuga, final age in an ascending arc. The intelligence of man will be highly developed. He will work in harmony with the divine plan. A descending arc of 12,000 years, starting with a descending golden age of 4,800 years, then begins for the world in A.D. 12,500. Man gradually sinks into ignorance. These cycles are the eternal rounds of Maya, the contrasts and relativities of the phenomenal universe. Men, one by one, escape from creation's prison of duality as they awaken to consciousness of their inseverable divine unity with the Creator. Master enlarged my understanding not only of astrology but of the world's scriptures. Placing the holy texts on the spotless table of his mind, he was able to dissect them with the scalpel of intuitive reasoning and to separate errors and interpolations of scholars from the truths, as originally expressed by the prophets. Fix one's vision on the end of the nose. This inaccurate interpretation of a Bhagavad Gita stanza, chapter 6, verse 13, 
widely accepted by Eastern pundits and Western translators, used to arouse Master's droll criticism. The path of a yogi is singular enough as it is, he remarked. Why counsel him that he must also make himself cross-eyed? The true meaning of nasikagram is origin of the nose, not end of the nose. The nose originates at the point between the eyebrows, the seat of spiritual vision. One Sankhya aphorism reads, Ishwa Aside, a lord of creation cannot be deduced, or God is not proved. Chiefly on the basis of this sentence, most scholars call the whole philosophy atheistical. The verse is not atheistical, Sri Yukteswar explained. It merely signifies that to the unenlightened man, dependent on his senses for all final judgments, proof of God must remain unknown and therefore non-existent. True Sankhya followers, with unshakable insight born of meditation, understand that the Lord is both existent and knowable. Master expounded the Christian Bible with a beautiful clarity. It was from my Hindu guru, unknown to the roll call of Christian membership, that I learned to perceive the deathless essence of the Bible and to understand the truth in Christ's assertion, surely the most thrillingly intransigent ever uttered. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The great masters of India mould their lives by the same godly ideals that animated Jesus. These men are his proclaimed kin. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. If ye continue in my word, Christ pointed out, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Freemen all, lords of themselves, the yogi Christs of India are part of the immortal fraternity, those that attain a liberating knowledge of the One Father. The Adam and Eve story is incomprehensible to me. I observed with considerable heat one day in my early struggles with the allegory. Why did God punish not only the guilty pair, but also the innocent, unborn generations? Master was amused, more by my vehemence than by my ignorance. Genesis is deeply symbolic and cannot be grasped by a literal interpretation, he explained. Its tree of life is the human body. The spinal cord is like an upturned tree with man's hair as its roots and afferent and efferent nerves as branches. The tree of the nervous system bears many enjoyable fruits or sensations of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. In these man may rightfully indulge, but he was forbidden the experience of sex, the apple at the centre of the body, in the midst of the garden. The serpent represents the coiled-up spinal energy that stimulates the sex nerves. Adam is reason, and Eve is feeling. When the emotion or Eve consciousness in any human being is overpowered by the sex impulse, his reason, or Adam, also succumbs. God created the human species by materializing the bodies of man and woman through the force of his will. He endowed the new species with the power to create children in a similar immaculate or divine manner. Because his manifestation in the individualized soul had hitherto been limited to animals, 
instinct abound and lacking the potentialities of full reason, God made the first human bodies, symbolically called Adam and Eve. To these, for advantageous upward evolution, he transferred the souls or divine essence of two animals. In Adam, or man, reason predominated. In Eve, or woman, feeling was ascendant. Thus was expressed the duality or polarity that underlies the phenomenal worlds. Reason and feeling remain in a heaven of cooperative joy so long as the human mind is not tricked by the serpentine energy of animal propensities. The human body was therefore not solely a result of evolution from beasts, but was produced through an act of special creation by God. The animal forms were too crude to express full divinity. Man was uniquely given the potentially omniscient, thousand-petaled lotus in the brain, as well as acutely awakened occult centers in the spine. God, or the divine consciousness present within the first created pair, counseled them to enjoy all human sensibilities, with one exception, sex sensations. These were banned, lest humanity enmesh itself in the inferior animal method of propagation. The warning not to revive subconsciously present bestial memories was unheeded. Resuming the way of brute procreation, Adam and Eve fell from the state of heavenly joy natural to the original perfect man. When they knew that they were naked, their consciousness of immortality was lost, even as God had warned them. They had placed themselves under the physical law by which bodily birth must be followed by bodily death. The knowledge of good and evil promised Eve by the serpent refers to the dualistic and oppositional experiences that mortals under Maya must undergo. Falling into delusion through misuse of his feeling and reason, or Eve and Adam consciousness, man relinquishes his right to enter the heavenly garden of divine self-sufficiency. The personal responsibility of every human being is to restore his parents, or dual nature, to a unified harmony, or Eden. As Sri Yukteswar ended his discourse, I glanced with new respect at the pages of Genesis. Dear Master, I said, for the first time I feel a proper filial obligation toward Adam and Eve. The Adam and Eve story of the Hindus is recounted in the Hori Purana, Srimad Bhagavata. The first man and woman, beings in physical form, are called Swayambhuva Manu, man born of the Creator, and his wife, Satarupa, true image. Their five children intermarried with Prajapatis, perfect beings who could assume corporeal form. From these first divine families was born the human race. Never in East or West have I heard anyone else expound the Christian scriptures with so deep a spiritual insight as Sri Yukteswar's. Theologians have misinterpreted Christ's words, Master said, in such passages as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Jesus meant never that he was the sole Son of God, but that no man can attain the unqualified absolute, the transcendent Father beyond creation, 
until he has first manifested the Son or activating Christ consciousness within creation. Jesus, who had achieved entire oneness with that Christ consciousness, identified himself with it inasmuch as his own ego had long since been dissolved. When Paul wrote, God created all things by Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3, 9, and when Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58, the sheer essence of the words is impersonality. A form of spiritual cowardice leads many worldly people to believe comfortably that only one man was the Son of God. Christ was uniquely created, they reason, so how can I, a mere mortal, emulate him? But all men have been divinely created and must some day obey Christ's command. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Understanding of the law of karma and its corollary, reincarnation, is displayed in numerous biblical passages. For example, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis 9.6 If every murderer must himself be killed by man, the reactive process obviously requires, in many cases, more than one lifetime. The contemporary police are just not quick enough. The equilibrating law of karma, as expounded in the Hindu scriptures, is that of action and reaction, cause and effect, sowing and reaping. In the course of natural rightnessness, rita, each man, by his thoughts and actions, becomes the moulder of his destiny. Whatever universal energies he himself, wisely or unwisely, has set in motion, must return to him as their starting point, like a circle, inexorably completing itself. Emerson wrote in Compensation, The world looks like a mathematical equation which, turn it how you will, balances itself. Every secret is told, every crime is punished, every virtue rewarded, every wrong redressed, in silence and certainty. An understanding of karma as the law of justice underlying life's inequalities serves to free the human mind from resentment against God and man. The early Christian church accepted the doctrine of reincarnation, which was expounded by the Gnostics and by numerous church fathers, including Clement of Alexandria, the celebrated Origen, both 3rd century, and St. Jerome, 5th century. The doctrine was first declared a heresy in A.D. 553 by the Second Council of Constantinople. At that time, many Christians thought the doctrine of reincarnation afforded man too ample a stage of time and space to encourage him to strive for immediate salvation. But truths suppressed lead disconcertingly to a host of errors. The millions have not utilized their one lifetime to seek God, but to enjoy this world so uniquely won, and so shortly to be forever lost. The truth is that man reincarnates on earth until he has consciously regained his status as a son of God. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, i.e. shall reincarnate no more. 
To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 and 21. Chapter 17 Sassi and the Three Sapphires Because you and my son think so highly of Swami Sri Yukteswar, I will take a look at him. The tone of voice used by Dr. Narayan Chunda Roy implied that he was humouring the whim of half-wits. I concealed my indignation in the best tradition of the prosthetor. My companion, a veterinary surgeon, was a confirmed agnostic. His young son, Santosh, had implored me to take an interest in his father. So far, my invaluable aid had been a bit on the invisible side. Dr. Roy accompanied me the following day to the Serampore Hermitage. After Master had granted him a brief interview, marked for the most part by stoic silence on both sides, the visitor brusquely departed. Why bring a dead man to the ashram? Sri Yukteswar looked at me inquiringly as soon as the door had closed on the Calcutta sceptic. Sir, the doctor's very much alive, but in a short time he will be dead. I was shocked. Sir, this will be a terrible blow to his son. Santosh yet hopes for time to change his father's materialistic views. I beseech you, master, to help the man. Very well. For your sake. My guru's face was impassive. The proud horse doctor is far gone in diabetes, although he does not know it. In fifteen days he will take to his bed. The physicians will give him up for lost. His natural time to leave this earth is six weeks from today. Owing to your intercession, however, on that date he will recover. But there is one condition. You must get him to wear an astrological bangle. He will doubtless object as violently as one of his horses before an operation. Master chuckled. After a silence, during which I wondered how Santosh and I might best employ the arts of cajolery on the doctor, Sri Yukteswar made further disclosures. As soon as the man gets well, advise him not to eat meat. He will not heed this counsel, however, and in six months, just as he is feeling at his best, he will drop dead. My guru added, the six-month extension of life is granted him only because of your plea. The following day I suggested to Santosh that he order an armlet at the jeweller's. It was ready in a week, but Dr. Roy refused to put it on. I am in the best of health. You will never impress me with these astrological superstitions. The doctor glanced at me belligerently. I recalled with amusement that Master had justifiably compared the man to a bulky horse. Another seven days passed. The doctor, suddenly ill, meekly consented to wear the bangle. Two weeks later, the physician in attendance told me that his patient's case was hopeless. He supplied harrowing details of the ravages inflicted by diabetes. I shook my head. My guru has said that, after a sickness lasting one month, Dr. Roy will be well. The physician stared at me incredulously, but he sought me out a fortnight later with an apologetic air. Dr. Roy has made a complete recovery, he exclaimed. It is the most amazing case in my experience. Never before have I seen a dying man show such an inexplicable comeback. Your guru must indeed be a healing prophet. 
After one interview with Dr. Roy, during which I repeated Sri Yukteswar's advice about a meatless diet, I did not see the man again for six months. He stopped for a chat one evening as I sat on the piazza of my family home. Tell your teacher that by eating meat frequently, I have wholly regained my strength. His unscientific ideas on diet have not influenced me. It was true that Dr. Roy looked a picture of health. But the next day, Santosh came running to me from his home on the next block. This morning, father dropped dead. This case was one of my strangest experiences with Master. He healed the rebellious veterinary surgeon in spite of his disbelief and extended the man's natural term on earth by six months just because of my earnest supplication. Sri Yukteswar was boundless in his kindness when responding to an urgent prayer of a devotee. It was my proudest privilege to bring college friends to meet my guru. Many of them would lay aside, at least in the ashram, their fashionable academic cloak of religious scepticism. One of my friends, Sasi, spent a number of happy weekends in Serampur. Master became immensely fond of the boy and lamented that his private life was wild and disorderly. Sasi, unless you reform, one year hence you will be dangerously ill. Sri Yukteswar gazed at my friend with affectionate exasperation. Mukunda is the witness. Don't say later that I didn't warn you. Sasi laughed. Master, I will leave it to you to interest a sweet charity of cosmos in my own sad case. My spirit is willing, but my will is weak. You are my only saviour on earth. I believe in nothing else. At least you should wear a two-carat blue sapphire. It will help you. I can't afford one. Anyhow, dear Guruji, if trouble comes, I fully believe you will protect me. In a year, you will bring three sapphires, Sri Yukteswar replied. They will be of no use then. Variations on this conversation took place regularly. I can't reform, Sassy would say in comical despair. And my trust in you, Master, is more precious to me than any stone. A year passed. One day I was visiting my guru at the Calcutta home of his disciple, Naran Babu. About ten o'clock in the morning, as Sri Yukteswar and I were sitting in the second-floor parlour, I heard the front door open. Master straightened stiffly. It is that Sassi, he remarked gravely. The year is now up. Both his lungs are gone. He has ignored my counsel. Tell him I don't want to see him. Half stunned by Sri Yukteswar's sternness, I raced down the stairway. Sasi was ascending. Oh, Mukunda, I do hope Master is here. I had a hunch he might be. Yes, but he doesn't wish to be disturbed. Sasi burst into tears and brushed past me. He threw himself at Sri Yukteswar's feet, placing there three beautiful sapphires. Omniscient Guru, the doctors say I have pulmonary tuberculosis. They give me only three months to live. I humbly implore your aid. I know you can heal me. Isn't it a bit late now to be worrying over your life? Depart with your jewels. Their time of usefulness is past. Master then sat, sphinx-like, in an unrelenting silence, punctuated by the boy's sobs for mercy.
An intuitive conviction came to me that Sri Yukteswar was merely testing the depth of Sasi's faith in the divine healing power. I was not surprised, a tense hour later, when Master turned a sympathetic gaze on my prostrate friend. Get up, Sasi. What a commotion you make in another person's house. Return the sapphires to the jewellers. They are an unnecessary expense now. But get an astrological bangle and wear it. Fear not, in a few weeks you shall be well. Sasi's smile illuminated his tear-marred face like sudden sun over a sodden landscape. Beloved Guru, shall I take the medicines prescribed by the doctors? Just as you wish, drink them or discard them, it doesn't matter. It is as impossible for you to die of tuberculosis as it would be for the sun and moon to interchange their positions. Sri Yukteswar added abruptly, Go now, before I change my mind. With an agitated bow, my friend hastily departed. I visited him several times during the next few weeks, and was aghast to find his condition increasingly worse. Sasi cannot last through the night. These words from his physician, and the spectacle of my friend, now reduced almost to a skeleton, sent me post-haste to Serampur. My guru listened coldly to my tearful report. Why do you come here to bother me? You have already heard me assure Sassi of his recovery. I bowed before him in great awe and retreated to the door. Sri Yukteswar said no parting word, but sank into silence, his unwinking eyes half open, their vision fled to another world. I returned at once to Sassi's home in Calcutta. With astonishment, I found my friend sitting up, drinking milk. Oh, Mukunda, what a miracle! Four hours ago, I felt Master's presence in the room. My terrible symptoms immediately disappeared. I feel that through His grace, I am entirely well. In a few weeks, Sasi was stouter and in better health than ever before. But his reaction to his healing was tinged with ingratitude. He seldom visited Sri Yukteswar again. My friend told me one day that he so deeply regretted his previous mode of life that he was ashamed to face the master. I could only conclude that Sasi's illness had had the contrasting effect of stiffening his will and impairing his manners. The first two years of my course at Scottish Church College were drawing to a close. My classroom attendance had been very spasmodic. What little studying I did was only to keep peace with my family. My two private tutors came regularly to my house. I was regularly absent. I discern at least this one regularity in my scholastic career. In India, two successful years of college bring an intermediate arts diploma. The student may then look forward to another two years and his A.B. degree. The intermediate arts final examinations loomed ominously ahead. I fled to Puri, where my guru was spending a few weeks. Vaguely hoping that he would say I need not appear at the finals, I told him of my unpreparedness. Sri Yukteswar smiled consolingly. You have wholeheartedly pursued your spiritual duties and could not help neglecting your college work. Apply yourself diligently to your books for the next week you shall get through your ordeal without failure. I returned to Calcutta, firmly suppressing the reasonable doubts that occasionally assailed me. 
surveying the mountain of books on my table, I felt like a traveller, lost in a wilderness. A long period of meditation brought me a labour-saving inspiration. Opening each book at random, I studied only those pages that lay thus exposed. After I pursued this course during eighteen hours a day for one week, I considered myself an expert on the art of cramming. The following days, in the examination halls, were a justification of my seemingly haphazard procedure. I passed all the tests, though by a hairbreadth. The congratulations of my friends and family were ludicrously mixed with ejaculations betraying their astonishment. On his return from Puri, Sri Yukteswar gave me a pleasant surprise. Your Calcutta studies are now over, he said. I shall see that you pursue your last two years of university work right here in Salampur. I was puzzled. Sir, there is no Bachelor of Arts course in this town. Salampur College, the sole institution of higher learning, offered only a two-year course in intermediate arts. Master smiled mischievously. I am too old to go about collecting donations to establish an A.B. college for you. I guess I shall have to arrange the matter through someone else. Two months later, Professor Howells, president of Salampur College, publicly announced that he had succeeded in raising sufficient funds to offer a four-year course. Salampur College became an affiliated branch of Calcutta University. I was one of the first students to enrol in Salampur as an A.B. candidate. Guruji, how kind you are to me. I have been longing to leave Calcutta and be near you every day in Salampur. Professor Howes does not dream how much he owes to your silent help. Sri Yukteswar gazed at me with mock severity. Now you won't have to spend so many hours on trains. What a lot of free time for your studies. Perhaps you will become less of a last-minute crammer and more of a scholar. But somehow his tone lacked conviction. Chapter 18 A Mohammedan Wonder Worker Years ago, right in this very room you now occupy, a Mohammedan wonder worker performed four miracles before me. Sri Yukteswar made this statement during his first visit to my new quarters. Immediately after entering Serampore College, I had taken a room in a nearby boarding house called Panti. It was an old-fashioned brick mansion fronting the Ganges. Master, what a coincidence! Are these newly decorated walls really ancient with memories? I looked around my simply furnished room with awakened interest. It is a long story, my guru smiled reminiscently. The name of the fakir was Afzal Khan. He had acquired his extraordinary powers through a chance encounter with a Hindu yogi. Son, I am thirsty. Fetch me some water. A dust-covered sannyasi made this request of Afzal one day during his early boyhood in a small village of eastern Bengal. Master, I am a Mohammedan. How could you, a Hindu, accept a drink from my hands? Your truthfulness pleases me, my child. I do not observe the ostracizing rules of ungodly sectarianism. Go, bring me water quickly. Afzal's reverent obedience was rewarded by a loving glance from the yogi. You possess good karma from former lives, he observed solemnly. I'm going to teach you a certain yoga method that will give you command over one of the invisible realms. The great powers that will be yours 
should be exercised for worthy ends. Never employ them selfishly. I perceive, alas, that you have brought over from the past some seeds of destructive tendencies. Do not allow them to sprout by watering them with fresh evil actions. The complexity of your previous karma is such that you must use this life to reconcile your yogic accomplishments with the highest humanitarian goals. After instructing the amazed boy in a complicated technique, the master vanished. Afsal faithfully followed his yoga exercise for twenty years. His miraculous feats began to attract widespread attention. It seems that he was always accompanied by a disembodied spirit, whom he called Hazrat. This invisible entity was able to fulfill the fakir's slightest wish. Ignoring his master's warning, Afzal began to misuse his powers. Whatever object he took up and then replaced would soon disappear without a trace. This disconcerting eventuality usually made the Mohammedan an objectionable guest. He visited large jewellery stores in Calcutta from time to time, representing himself as a possible purchaser. Any jewel he handled would vanish shortly after he had left the shop. Afsal was often surrounded by several hundred students, attracted by the hope of learning his secrets. The fakir occasionally invited them to travel with him. At the railway station he would manage to touch a roll of tickets. These he would push towards the clerk, remarking, I have changed my mind and won't buy them now. But when he boarded the train with his retinue, Afzal would be in possession of the required tickets. These exploits created an indignant uproar. Bengali jewellers and ticket sellers were succumbing to nervous breakdowns. The police who sought to arrest Afzal found themselves helpless. The fakir could remove incriminating evidence merely by saying, Hazrat, take this away. Sri Yukteswar rose from his seat and walked to the balcony of my room which overlooked the Ganges. I followed him, eager to hear more of the baffling Mohammedan raffles. This Panti house formerly belonged to a friend of mine. He became acquainted with Afzal and asked him here. My friend also invited about twenty neighbours, including myself. I was only a youth then and felt a lively curiosity about the notorious fakir. Master laughed. I took the precaution of not wearing anything valuable. Afzal looked me over inquisitively, then remarked, You have powerful hands. Go downstairs to the garden. Get a smooth stone and write your name on it with chalk. Then throw the stone as far as possible into the Ganges. I obeyed. As soon as the stone had vanished under distant waves, the Mohammedan addressed me again. Fill a pot with Ganges water near the front of this house. After I had returned with a vessel of water, the fakir cried, Hazrat, put the stone in the pot. The stone appeared at once. I removed it from the vessel and found my signature as legible as when I had written it. Babu, one of my friends in the room, was wearing a heavy antique gold watch and chain. The fakir examined them with ominous admiration. Soon they were missing. Afzal, please return my prized heirloom. Babu was nearly in tears. The Mohammedan was stoically silent for a while, then said, You have 
five hundred rupees in an iron safe. Bring them to me, and I will tell you where to locate your timepiece. The distraught Babu left immediately for his home. He came back shortly and handed Afsal the required sum. Go to the little bridge near your house, the fakir instructed Babu. Call on Hazrat to give you the watch and chain. Babu rushed away. On his return, he was wearing a smile of relief and no jewellery whatever. When I commanded Hazrat as directed, he announced, my watch came tumbling down the air into my right hand. You may be sure I locked the heirloom in my safe before rejoining the group here. Babu's friends, witnesses of the comico tragedy of the ransom for a watch, were staring with resentment at Afsal. He now spoke placatingly. Please name any drink you want. Hazrat will produce it. A number asked for milk, others for fruit juices. I was not too much shocked when the unnerved Babu requested whiskey. The Mohammedan gave an order. The obliging Hazrat sent sealed containers sailing down and thudding to the floor. Each man found his desired beverage. The promise of the fourth spectacular feat of the day was doubtless gratifying to our host. Afzal offered to supply an instantaneous lunch. Let us order the most expensive dishes, Babu suggested gloomily. I want an elaborate meal for my five hundred rupees. Everything should be served on gold plates. As soon as each man had expressed his preferences, the fakir addressed himself to the inexhaustible Hazrat. A great rattle ensued. Gold platters filled with intricately prepared curries, hot luchis, and many out-of-season fruits landed from nowhere at our feet. All the food was delicious. After feasting for an hour, we started to leave the room. A tremendous noise, as though dishes were being piled up, caused us to turn round. Lo, there was no sign of the glittering plates or the remnants of the meal. Guruji, I interrupted, if Afzal could easily secure such things as gold dishes, why did he covet the property of others? The fakir was not highly developed spiritually, Sri Yukteswar explained. His mastery of a certain yoga technique gave him access to an astral plane where any desire is immediately materialized. Through the agency of an astral being, Hazrat, the Mohammedan, could summon the atoms of any object from etheric energy by an act of powerful will. But such astrally produced objects are structurally evanescent. They cannot be long retained. Afzal still yearned for worldly wealth, which, though more hardly earned, has a more dependable durability. I laughed. It too sometimes vanishes unaccountably. Afzal was not a man of God-realization, Master went on. Miracles of a permanent and beneficial nature are performed by true saints because they have attuned themselves to the omnipotent Creator. Afzal was merely an ordinary man with an extraordinary power of penetrating a subtle realm not usually entered by mortals until death. I understand now, Guruji. The afterworld appears to have some charming features. Master agreed. I never saw Afzal after that day, but a few years later, 
Babu came to my home to show me a newspaper account of the Mohammedan's public confession. From it, I learned the facts I have just told you about Afsal's early initiation from a Hindu guru. The gist of the latter part of the published document, as recalled by Sri Yukteswar, was as follows. I, Afsal Khan, am writing these words as an act of penance and as a warning to those who seek the possession of miraculous powers. For years I have been misusing the wondrous abilities imparted to me through the grace of God and my Master. I became drunk with egotism, feeling that I was beyond the ordinary laws of morality. My day of reckoning finally arrived. Recently I met an old man on a road outside Calcutta. He limped along painfully, carrying a shining object that looked like gold. I addressed him with greed in my heart. I am Afsal Khan, the great fakir. What have you there? This ball of gold is my sole material wealth. It can be of no interest to a fakir. I implore you, sir, to heal my limp. I touched the ball and walked away without reply. The old man hobbled after me. He soon raised an outcry. My gold is gone. As I paid no attention, he suddenly spoke in a stentorian voice that issued oddly from his frail body. Do you not recognize me? I stood speechless, aghast at the belated discovery that this unimpressive old cripple was none other than the great saint who long, long ago had initiated me into yoga. He straightened himself. His body instantly became strong and youthful. So, my guru's glance was fiery. I see with my own eyes that you use your powers not to help suffering humanity, but to prey on it like a common thief. I withdraw your occult gifts. Hazrat is now freed from you. No longer shall you be a terror in Bengal. I called on Hazrat in anguished tones. For the first time he did not appear to my inner sight, but a dark veil suddenly lifted. I saw clearly the blasphemy of my life. My Guru, I thank you for coming to banish my long delusion. I was sobbing at his feet. I promise to forsake my worldly ambitions. I will retire to the mountains for lonely meditation on God, hoping to atone for my evil past. My master regarded me with silent compassion. I feel your sincerity, he said finally. Because of your earlier years of strict obedience, and because of your present repentance, I will grant you one boon. Your other powers are now gone, but whenever food and clothing are needed, you may still call successfully on Hazrat to supply them. Devote yourself wholeheartedly to divine understanding in the mountain solitudes. My guru then vanished. I was left to my tears and reflections. Farewell, world. I go to seek the forgiveness of the Cosmic Beloved. Chapter 19 My Master in Calcutta appears in Serampur. I am often beset by atheistic doubts, yet a torturing surmise sometimes haunts me. May not untapped soul possibilities exist? Is man not missing his real destiny if he fails to explore them? 
These remarks of Dijian Babu, my roommate at the Panti boarding house, were called forth by my invitation that he meet my guru. Sri Yukteswarji will initiate you into Kriya Yoga, I replied. It calms the dualistic turmoil by a divine inner certainty. That evening, Dijian accompanied me to the hermitage. In Master's presence, my friend received such spiritual peace that he was soon a constant visitor. The trivial preoccupations of daily life do not satisfy our deepest needs. For wisdom, too, man has native hunger. By Sri Yukteswar's words, Dijen was inspired to try to discover within him a realer self than the shallow ego of a transient incarnation. As Dijen and I were both pursuing the A.B. course at Serampore College, we got into the habit of walking together to the ashram as soon as classes were over. We would often see Sri Yukteswar standing on his second-floor balcony, welcoming our approach with a smile. One afternoon, Kanai, a young hermitage resident, met Dijen and me at the door with disappointing news. Master is not here. He was summoned to Calcutta by an urgent note. The following day, I received a postcard from my guru. I shall leave Calcutta Wednesday morning, he had written. You and Dijen meet the 9am train at Serampore station. About 8.30 on Wednesday morning, a telepathic message from Sri Yukteswar flashed insistently to my mind. I am delayed. Don't meet the 9 o'clock train. I conveyed the latest instructions to Dijen, who was already dressed for departure. You and your intuition, my friend's voice was edged in scorn, I prefer to trust Master's written word. I shrugged my shoulders and seated myself with quiet finality. Muttering angrily, Dijen made for the door and closed it noisily behind him. As the room was rather dark, I moved nearer to a window overlooking the street. The scant sunlight suddenly increased to an intense brilliancy in which the iron-barred window completely vanished. Against this dazzling background appeared the clearly materialized figure of Sri Yukteswar. Bewildered to the point of shock, I rose from my chair and knelt before him. With my customary gesture of respectful greeting at my guru's feet, I touched his shoes. These were a pair familiar to me of orange-dyed canvas, soled with rope. His ochre swami cloth brushed against me, I distinctly felt not only the texture of his robe, but also the gritty surface of the shoes and the pressure of his toes within them. Too much astounded to utter a word, I stood up and gazed at him questioningly. I was pleased that you got my telepathic message. Master's voice was calm, entirely normal. I have now finished my business in Calcutta and shall arrive in Serampore by the ten o'clock train. As I still stared mutely, Sri Yukteswar went on. This is not an apparition, but my flesh and blood form. I have been divinely commanded to give you this experience, rarely known on earth. Meet me at the station. You and Dijen will see me coming toward you, dressed as I am now. I shall be preceded by a fellow passenger, a little boy carrying a silver jug. My guru 
placed both hands on my head with a murmured blessing. As he concluded with the words, Tabe Asi, the Bengali goodbye, I heard a peculiar rumbling sound. His body began to melt gradually within the piercing light. First his feet and legs vanished, then his torso and head, like a scroll being rolled up. To the very last, I could feel his fingers resting lightly on my hair. The effulgence faded. Nothing remained before me but the barred window and a pale stream of sunlight. I remained in a half-stupor, questioning whether I had not been the victim of a hallucination. A crestfallen Dijen soon entered the room. Master was not on the nine o'clock train or even the nine-thirty. My friend made his announcement with a slightly apologetic air. Come, I know he will arrive at ten o'clock. I took Dijen's hand and rushed him forcibly along with me, heedless of his protests. In about ten minutes we entered the station, where the train was already puffing to a halt. The whole train is filled with the light of Master's aura. He is there, I exclaimed joyfully. You dream so? Dijen laughed mockingly. Let us wait here. I told my friend details of the way in which our guru would approach us. As I finished my description, Sri Yukteswar came into view, wearing the same clothes I had seen a short time earlier. He walked slowly in the wake of a small lad bearing a silver jug. For a moment a wave of cold fear passed through me at the incredible strangeness of my experience. I felt the materialistic twentieth-century world slipping from me. Was I back in the ancient days when Jesus appeared before Peter on the sea? As Sri Yukteswar, a modern yogi Christ, neared the place where Dijin and I were standing speechless, Master smiled at my friend and remarked, I sent you a message too, but you were unable to grasp it. Dijin was silent, but glared at me suspiciously. After we had escorted our guru to his hermitage, my friend and I proceeded towards Sarampur College. Dijen halted in the street, indignation streaming from his every pore. So, Master sent me a message, yet you concealed it. I demand an explanation. Can I help it if your mental mirror oscillates with such restlessness that you cannot register our guru's instructions, I retorted. The anger vanished from Dijin's face. I see what you mean, he said ruefully, but please explain how you could know about the child with the jug. By the time I had finished the story of Master's phenomenal appearance at the boarding house that morning, my friend and I had reached Sarampore College. The account I have just heard of our Guru's powers, Dijin said, makes me feel that any university in the world is only a kindergarten. Chapter 20 We Do Not Visit Kashmir Father, I want to invite Master and four friends to accompany me to the Himalayan foothills during my summer vacation. May I have six railway passes to Kashmir and enough money to cover our travel expenses. As I had expected, Father laughed heartily. This is the third time you have given me the same cock-and-bull story. Didn't you make a similar request last summer and the year before? At the last moment, 
Sri Yukteswarji refuses to go. It is true, father, I don't know why my guru will not give me his definite word about Kashmir, but if I tell him that I have already secured the passes from you, somehow I think that this time he will consent to make the journey. Father was unconvinced at the moment, but the following day, after some good-humoured jibes, he handed me six passes and a roll of ten rupee bills. I hardly think your theoretical trip needs such practical props, he remarked, but here they are. That afternoon I exhibited my booty to Sri Yukteswar. Though he smiled at my enthusiasm, his words were noncommittal. I would like to go. We shall see. He made no comment when I asked his little hermitage disciple, Kanai, to accompany us. I also invited three other friends. Rajendra Nath Mitra, Jotin Odi, and one other boy. Our date of departure was set for the following Monday. On Saturday and Sunday I stayed in Calcutta, where marriage rites for a cousin were being celebrated at my family home. I arrived in Serampore with my luggage early Monday morning. Rajendra met me at the hermitage door. Master is out, walking. He has refused to go. I was equally grieved and obdurate. I will not give father a third chance to ridicule my chimerical plans for Kashmir. The rest of us should go. Rajendra agreed. I left the ashram to find a servant. Can I, I knew, would not take the trip without master, and someone was needed to look after the luggage. I bethought myself of Bihari, previously a servant in my family home, who was now employed by a Serampore schoolmaster. As I walked along briskly, I met my guru in front of the Christian church near Serampore courthouse. Where are you going? Sri Yukteswar's face was unsmiling. Sir, I hear that you and Kanai will not take the trip we have been planning. I am seeking Bihari. You will recall that last year he was so desirous of seeing Kashmir that he even offered to serve without pay. I remember. Nevertheless, I don't think Bihari will be willing to go. I was exasperated. He's just eagerly waiting for this opportunity. My guru silently resumed his walk. I soon reached the schoolmaster's house. Bihari in the courtyard greeted me with a friendly warmth that abruptly vanished, as soon as I mentioned Kashmir. With a murmured word of apology, the servant left me and entered his employer's house. I waited half an hour, nervously assuring myself that Behari's delay was being caused by preparations for his trip. Finally, I knocked at the front door. Behari left by the back stairs about thirty minutes ago, a man informed me. A slight smile hovered about his lips. I departed sadly, wondering whether my invitation had been too coercive or whether Master's unseen influence were at work. Passing the Christian church, again I saw my guru walking slowly toward me. Without waiting to hear my report, he exclaimed, So Bihari would not go. Now what are your plans? I felt like a recalcitrant child who is determined to defy his masterful father. Sir, I am going to ask my uncle to lend me his servant, Lal Dari. See your uncle if you want to, Sri Yogteshwar replied with a chuckle, but I hardly think you will enjoy the visit. Apprehensive but rebellious, 
I left my guru and entered Serampore Courthouse. My paternal uncle, Sarada Ghosh, a government attorney, welcomed me affectionately. I am leaving today with some friends for Kashmir, I told him. For years, I have been looking forward to this Himalayan trip. I am happy for you, Mukunda. Is there anything I can do to make your journey more comfortable? These kind words gave me a lift of encouragement. Dear uncle, I said, could you possibly spare me your servant, Laldari? My simple request had the effect of an earthquake. Uncle jumped so violently that his chair overturned, the papers on the desk flew in every direction, and his pipe, a long, coconut-stemmed hubble-bubble, fell to the floor with a great clatter. You selfish young man, he shouted, quivering with wrath. What a preposterous idea! Who will look after me if you take my servant on one of your pleasure jaunts? I concealed my surprise, reflecting that my amiable uncle's sudden change of front was only one more enigma in a day fully devoted to incomprehensibility. My retreat from the courthouse office was more alacritous than dignified. I returned to the hermitage, where my friends were expectantly gathered. A conviction was growing in me that some sufficient, if exceedingly recondite motive was behind Master's attitude. Remorse seized me for having tried to thwart my guru's will. Mukunda, wouldn't you like to stay a while longer with me? Sri Yukteswar inquired. Rajendra and the others may go ahead now and wait for you in Calcutta. There will be plenty of time to catch the last evening train, leaving Calcutta for Kashmir. Sir, I don't care to go without you, I said mournfully. My friends paid not the slightest attention to my remark. They summoned a hackney carriage and departed with all the luggage. Kanai and I sat quietly at our guru's feet. After a half hour of silence, Master rose and walked towards the second-floor dining balcony. Can I please serve Mukunda's food? His train leaves soon. Getting up from my blanket seat, I staggered suddenly with nausea and a ghastly churning sensation in my stomach. The stabbing pain was so intense that I felt I had been abruptly hurled into some violent hell. Groping blindly toward my guru, I collapsed before him, exhibiting all symptoms of the dread Asiatic cholera. Sri Yukteswar and Kanai carried me to the sitting-room. I cried in agony, Master, I surrender my life to you, for I believed it was indeed fast ebbing from the shores of my body. Sri Yukteswar put my head on his lap, stroking my forehead with angelic tenderness. You see now what would have happened if you were at the station with your friends, he said. I had to look after you in this strange way because you chose to doubt my judgment about taking the trip at this particular time. I understood at last. As great masters seldom see fit to display their powers openly, a casual observer of the day's events would have considered them quite natural. My guru's intervention had been too subtle to be detected. He had inconspicuously worked his will through Bihari and my uncle and Rajendra and others. Probably everyone but me had thought the situations logical and normal. As Sri Yukteswar never failed to observe his social obligations, 
he instructed Kanai to summon a physician and to notify my uncle. Master, I protested, only you can heal me. I am too far gone for any doctor. Child, you are protected by the divine mercy. Don't worry about the doctor. He will not find you in this state. You are already healed. With my guru's words, the excruciating suffering left me. I sat up feebly. A doctor soon arrived and examined me carefully. You appear to have passed through the worst, he said. I will take some specimens with me for laboratory tests. The following morning the physician arrived hurriedly. I was sitting up in good spirits. Well, well, here you are, smiling and chatting as though you had had no close call with death. He patted my hand gently. I hardly expected to find you alive, after I had discovered from the specimens that your disease was Asiatic cholera. You are fortunate, young man, to have a guru with divine healing powers. I am convinced of it. I agreed wholeheartedly. As the doctor was preparing to leave, Rajendra and Audi appeared at the door. The resentment in their faces changed into sympathy as they glanced at the physician and then at my somewhat wan countenance. We were angry when you didn't turn up as agreed at the Calcutta train. You've been sick? Yes. I could not help laughing as my friends placed the luggage in the same corner it had occupied yesterday. I paraphrased. There was a ship that sailed for Spain. Before it arrived, it was back again. Master entered the room. I permitted myself a convalescence liberty and captured his hand lovingly. Guruji, I said, from my twelfth year on, I have made many unsuccessful attempts to reach the Himalayas. I am finally convinced that without your blessings, the goddess Parvati will not receive me.